This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 513 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome back on the show, Major Alison Brager. Now, Alison was recently on the road to becoming an astronaut, so she discusses that journey, competing with the U.S. Army Warrior Fitness Team, the Army PFT, strength and conditioning equipment, sleep deprivation, and so much more. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and most importantly, leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly makes this podcast more visible for others to find. And this is a free library of over 500 guests now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I welcome back Major Allison Brager. Enjoy. So, Alison, I want to start by saying welcome back to the Behind the Shield podcast. Yeah, I mean, it's awesome to be here. And I think in the interim period, you also published your book. So we talked about my book the last time I was on my show. But uh, congratulations again on such a, a daunting feat, because as we both know, it's not easy. No, it was uh, quite an interesting experience. It couldn't have come at a better time, though, with the, the COVID 
crisis going on, so it was a good time to to make the most of the time at home. Um, so yeah, after we did our interview, you ended up coming to the house and we had dinner together, which was very cool. Um, so what I would love to start with is right before we hit record, you told me about the new position that you hold. So let's begin with that and, and why it's so pertinent that a woman is in that position now. Sure. Um, so, you know, obviously as a military officer, it is uh, critical at some point in your career that you take command of a unit. Um, and it's kind of fitting as a sleep and uh, circadian fatigue scientist for the Army and, you know, for the federal government at large that um, I am at present the commander of a fleet of professional truck, truck drivers. Um, I have about 40 soldiers who are professionally licensed truck drivers that drive about a million miles across the country. Um, almost 365 days a year advertising the army um, and visiting high schools, colleges and fairs and festivals, educating uh, people and all the different army professions out there. Um, and what's even more, I guess, perplexing about it is I'm, I'm the first female to ever command this unit. Um, so the unit has actually been around since 1936 uh, it started after the World's Fair, and it used to travel along the nation's railroad system to um, have replicas of, you know, American artifacts like the Bill of Rights and the Constitution of the U.S. Uh, apparently, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, President Kennedy directly called the, uh, the Mobile Exhibit Company, which is the name of the company I command, um, to have them uh, advertise or educate the American public about uh, the real facts of the Cuban Missile Crisis to make sure that no misinformation was, was being broadcasted to the public. Uh, but since then, they have uh, transitioned from traveling on the nation's rail railroads to the nation's highways. And so, yes, I'm, I'm their commander. Beautiful. It seems that we could, could do with uh, some, some real scientists traveling the country addressing misinformation right now <laughs> no seriously i you know it's funny i was like i didn't know about the president kennedy thing until i one day i was just waiting for the battalion commander and i was just looking at the history of the unit uh, outside in the hallway and that is that was my first thought i was like wow this could have really been super beneficial uh <laughs> during the during the start even before the start of the pandemic like I totally wish I would have gotten that call from the president, but uh, uh, the chances of that happening uh, probably would not have been um, very high. No, and that's all. No, and it's interesting because this has spanned two presidents, and so no one can say, "Oh, you're leaning one way or the other." This is just, I think, uh, a leadership issue. And I've talked about this a lot, very openly. I, so far, I've seen people with red ties and blue ties, you know, and and it's the same kind of issue there's a miscommunication there's a lot of people that are very scared and you know as a as a person in not only the first responder space but in the wellness space in general as well i feel like some very very important information wasn't disseminated about health about nutrition about mindful practice and time in nature and you know so yeah i think from both sides of the the political fence we could have done a lot better disseminating information this last year and a half Oh my gosh, absolutely, yes. And I hope there's uh, 
you know, just with the, the whole pandemic, there is some uh, lessons learned exactly from what you said, both sides of the fence. Well, as a, I guess an icebreaker then, you one of the uh, articles I saw early on, you know, you you were being interviewed about that. So, you know, what, what was the lens that you were looking through the last year and a half and with you being, you know, a neuroscientist, with you being a high-level CrossFit athlete, what are some of the, the takeaways now a year and a half um, that retrospectively you think, you know, we could have done better and, and how can we still improve from where we are right now? Well, I mean, I think it, it's the same thing we related to, um, you know, the holistic health and, and fitness that uh, I preach around the army and, and military at large is it's all about educating and empowering and putting out the right education and information. And I think obviously that got muddled right from the beginning. And, and you know, this is stuff I can openly talk about now is uh, under the under the last administration, like half-ass joking about uh, injecting oneself with Lysol or using bleach or uh, other ridiculous means of, uh, you know, killing microbes um, was, was bad from the start, right? And then the, the information, even if it was accurate after the fact, was less believable because there wasn't any fact checking in the be- or vetting in the beginning. Um, and then, you know, I would say during my time supporting the, the COVID-19 lab at the Javits Center, I mean, really, I would say it was always a struggle between are we genuinely doing this for the American public? Like, are we truly trying to kill the virus and mitigate the spread of the virus across New York City and the greater metropolitan area? Or are we trying to fulfill some political agenda? Um, You know, there's going to be politics with everything. It's, It's inevitable. But I really felt like the politics were driving a lot of um, the decision-making ma- processes by the leaders more so than anything. Um, and, and I think the best example of this, which honestly it worked out to our benefit, right, was bringing um, uh, comfort or whatever, which one it was. It was, uh, was it Mercy or Comfort? Yes, the USS Comfort, because there's two hospital ships, you know, there's Mercy and Comfort, was bringing comfort in there. I mean, really it was to placate the American people um, but whoever thought bringing a hospital ship during a respiratory infectious disease would be a smart idea. However, it worked out to our advantage um, in the Javits Center because I will tell you in the lab, we were always at critically low supply levels. And if we didn't have the comfort and if we honestly didn't have my personal vehicle uh, to drive back and forth, sometimes in the middle of the night in order to sustain the, the supply in the field support hospital, I'm not sure what we would have done. Um, but then, you know, there was other things too about like who was really in charge. Was it the city of New York? Was it the military? Um, you know, those are all things I, I can't really talk much about. But um, yeah, it, it, for me, I, I've gotten to see both sides that the misinformation by the higher echelons and then also the politics of it as well. 
Well, if you don't mind, expand on on what the Javits Center is and and what you were seeing, because I mean that's the thing I I talk about this all the time. The umpire in a tennis match, that's how I feel like most of us are. We're in the middle, looking left and right, wondering what the hell is going on because, you know, we acknowledge that it's it's a thing. Absolutely. You know, I've got friends who have lost, you know, family members to it. But again, the the magnitude, the numbers, some of the uh um interventions that we're told to do, some of the microbiology that basically seems to go against everything I was ever taught about microbiology. Um, you know, that there's 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 people in the middle that are like, yes, it's real, but yes, you also seem to be far overreaching with some of these demands that you're putting on the public. So, you know, what was the Javits Center, and then and then what was the magnitude of what you were seeing boots on the ground there? Yeah. Um, so the Javits Center, as you know, it's a very large convention center. Uh, it was kind of surreal for me being there because I was there in 2015 to pick up my race packet for the New York City Marathon. Uh, that's that's where you get your race packet to run the New York City Marathon. That's where a lot of conventions and conferences are held. Um, and so really, it was one of the, the designated places. Um, there were other field support hospitals. So basically, it's just a large public area where they have mobile medical and hospital equipment that usually you see in austere environments, right? So, you know, out in, in the Middle East or out um, in forward operating areas, uh, you're able to bring that in. Um, basically, it's in shipping containers. So it's a, it's a fully functional hospital uh, set up out of shipping containers. Our personal lab uh, was came from, uh, came from Poland. So it was, there's a barge going to Poland because that's where our field support hospital or lab was going, and it was redirected into the, the harbor of New York to support us. Um, and so across this 32 days that the Javits Center was open, um, we saw about 1,900 COVID and COVID convalescent patients. Um, at first, we were only taking COVID convalescent, which basically means somebody who had been in contact with somebody who had COVID, um, but not, you know, there weren't, weren't testing capabilities at the time, so we couldn't truly test for it. Um, but then, you know, once the information got out that we weren't seeing COVID patients, you know, there was a public outcry, we started taking COVID patients, even though we weren't initially supposed to. Um, so, yeah, I mean, at, in the end of the day, like, whether it's in our field support hospital or the sisters uh, field support hospitals at Columbia, they had uh, one set up in their football stadium. And then of course there's the one that was set up in central park. That was extremely morbid because uh, there was an actual morgue set up there. Um, you know, they, there's hundreds of people who died. Um, and, and, you know, there were a few faces like being down there on the patient floor that I'll never forget. Like you saw their face and you're like, you just knew you're like, that person's not going to make it. Like whether you saw their arterial blood gases or any sort of vitals, like you just kind of knew looking at some people that they weren't going to make it. Now with, um, you know, again, with suppressing certain parts of this whole puzzle, it seems like the pre-existing conditions the obesity was really really like aggressively suppressed it was almost like heresy to discuss that what what were you seeing as far as you know the covid patients that that were getting very very ill even 
not making it. Was there a, you know, a parallel as far as underlying ill health in, in the beginning? So I can't really speak too much about that in the Javits Center because I was um, in the lab. So you like we only got the samples. Um, and so we just more or less saw the patient numbers based on their barcode, not necessarily the patient themselves. But so I feel like with New York, right, New York was inevitable, just like L.A. was inevitable. And those massive cities where you have people stacked on top of each other. There's a reason why the military had auxiliary field support hospitals um, in Philadelphia and Boston, because people literally live on top of each other. Um, I think the biggest indicator of the link between obesity and um, risk of being infected with COVID-19 was seen in the South, right? Because the South historically has high comorbidities with diabetes, uh, obesity, and all those, you know, first world disease states. Um, and I have a friend, she actually was the, um, the emergency room COVID-19 doc. She's a pulmonologist by day. Um, but of course, she and the other pulmonologists, cardiologists, et cetera, were tasked to, to work, you know, the, the COVID-19 um, um, ICU. And I mean, she would tell you the direct link. She was in Gulfport, Mississippi. So that kind of says it all right there. Um, she can tell you the direct link between um, obesity and um, the spread of COVID there. And also morbidity, mortality and morbidity related to COVID. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I think they, they finally came out with, with studies, but it was literally over a year later when people acknowledged that. Now, one more area, and I want to get away from, from this topic, but I think it's important for people to hear the good news about this, the fact that, you know, the numbers weren't as bad. And I got some very interesting perspectives, whether it was Tom Beaver, um, who his company Beaver Fit actually put together morgues in London, and they never even got used, which is amazing news. I mean, that that should be on the news that there were you know, morgues that never, ever got filled. Um, I had a nurse on here who was at one of the makeshift hospitals again. They they never even got patients in that particular one. They, they basically dismantled it again. With all the resources you sent, were they, you know, utilized fully or was, again, optimistically, great news, there not a need for a lot of the facilities that we sent there? So New York was New York was always hurting. Like we we needed more and we weren't getting more like, you know, I we joke about this in hindsight, but like. You know, my, my, so it wasn't just an army operation, right? It was army, it was Navy, it was public health service. It was, um, there's some air force folks as well. Um, we all had to use our network in order to get supplies daily. Like it, it was like every day we were facilitating some backdoor drug deal. Like if my battle, um, didn't know one of the Navy lab officers who he randomly met when he was doing his uh, medical officer training years and years ago, like we would have been screwed. And it's just like, so I think New York, again, it goes back to this idea of you have this very large metropolis area and where infectious disease is inevitable. And New York tried their best to use every single resource. But I think, you know, in other other cities and other areas of country of the country, they were kind of hoarding on to like 
their, their supply, which I understand, but, um, you know, I think a big lesson learned from this is like when it comes to logistics, you know, like every, uh, every military unit, um, has their own logistician, right? I think there needs to be some like federally, um, housed logistics and like team of logisticians just to deal with these states of emergencies because otherwise you're just scrambling to leverage your network as much as possible to get shit done and to save lives yeah well thank you for that i mean that's just it i love hearing all these different perspectives it's not to sway anything it's not to you know debate or argue or anything like that it's just you know you were there tell me what you saw you were there tell me what you saw you were you know in in this country or that country and this is what we need to hear it's not political it's not anything other than this person was a paramedic here this person was a doctor there and i think these are the perspectives that we need and i agree with you completely just looking at a city if we stack humans vertically you know and and you know having been a medic in some very very busy urban areas in my career watching at us, you know, the paramedics of the world holding the walls on a regular day, it's an absolute no-brainer than the NHS, for example, that has been cut and cut and cut, that anything like this is going to overwhelm them. Anything in New York or LA is going to overwhelm them. So then understanding that, you know, more resources may have to go to our very, very densely populated areas, I agree with you completely. And that's 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 what we need to do. We spent a year and a half, we need to learn lessons from this other the, otherwise the people that did die died for nothing if we're just going to ignore everything that happened and, and move forward exactly so we kind of did this after the fact we worked with um the big army computing lab um to directly identify like how long it took a patient to go from you know one of the hospitals whether it's nyu um or you know some hospital uptown to the Javits Center, what, how long did it take to in-process them? What was their average stay? Um, what were their pre-existing conditions? Were they there for COVID? Um, you know, did they survive? Did they die? Um, what was the, you know, staff to patient ratio? We tried to, what was the layout of the hospital like? We, we tried to like use all these factors to put into a big computing algorithm so we could use it to predict uh, responsiveness during future pandemics. And actually a big part of that because of the lab was the supply and demand of supplies. Because I think, you know, when like all of us were called out on this no knock deployment, right? Like I literally was sitting at my computer catching up on some army training around 11 a.m. on this Thursday. And I was basically told go to base, grab your shit, and you have to be in New York City in two days. And we have no idea where you're staying or how long you're staying. Pretend like you're planning to go out to the field. So I had to go grab my, uh, you know, Kevlar helmet and my Kev- and my uh, ballistic vest. Like they made me grab it all um, because I was prepared to sleep in an army tent on a cot uh, with, you know, 40 other people for God knows how long in the middle of New York City. Um, and so I think because of the, the, you know, the quick reactive nature of that, we never really thought about supply, right? We were always thinking about lives. Like we were there to save lives, even if it meant like risking and, and taking our own. Um, but I think in hindsight, there are so many lessons learned. 
Um, and there are a lot of uh, people like the army team I was part of who are trying to prepare for the logistical side of the pandemic so that you, this doesn't happen again. And, you know, somebody asked me yesterday, they're like, do you think this Delta variant will bring you back to New York? Um, and, and, and it might, you know, like the team I was with, um, more than half of them are deployed right now in Baghdad. And I was supposed to go with them until um, I got cut from the roster. So who knows, like our team, we might be going back to New York soon. At least this time, I think we would have a better approach. And I think the military has also um, put systems and processes in place to, uh, to, to approach it differently, too, if we do have to get called back. Yeah, well, just staying on that, because again, speaking of misinformation, let's try and get some information from, you know, respected neuroscientists. Um, without loading the question again, what is your take on this variant? Do you see it as just a magnification of what we already have? And therefore, the things that we've been doing the last year and a half should have bolstered most people? Or is this a brand new virus that kind of trumps everything prior and we're back to, to zero again, which is, to me, how this is being presented at the moment? Yeah. So I don't think we're back to zero because here's the thing is like coronavirus isn't brand new. It's been around for over 100 years. And like as I say, I like to tell people, you know, I have soldiers who are uncertain about getting the vaccine. And the first thing I tell them is like, it's not like the scientists at Walter Reed uh, were the, you know, one of the Moderna vaccine was developed and the other scientists for Pfizer woke up one day and said to themselves, oh, gee, now we have to start working on coronavirus. There have been experts in the field of corona uh, in understanding the, the dynamics and the architecture of the virus for decades that the NIH, the federal government, the military has hired a part of this whole branch of emerging infectious diseases. Like it exists for a reason. Um, and so I don't think like this variant is, is anything new. It's at the end of the day, microbes survive, right? Like insects and microbes inhabit about 99.5% of the earth and they will find a way just like humans to adapt and thrive. And I think what it comes back to is what we just talked about. If you're vaccinated, you present a lesser risk of having a, a an adverse responsiveness to if you contract the Delta variant. And two, if you're healthy and you're not overweight and you don't have any pre-existing comorbidity, you're at a much better odd. It, I think it's it's no different than the than the seasonal flu, right? Yeah, no, I agree completely. And it's interesting because one of my friends, uh, Chris Colvin, Dr. Chris Colvin, who's an ER physician in Texas, you know, he's recently posted, I mean, again, that their, their ER and ICU was kind of overwhelmed, but every single one of these patients is not vaccinated. And again, standing in the middle, I've been vaccinated because I want to go back to the UK. I haven't seen my family in two years. My son has been vaccinated for the same reason. I'm not anti-vax. I'm not super excited about having anything injected into my body. I'm in the middle. But I didn't pitch a fit about Hep B or MMR or any of these things that I had to take as a firefighter. And, you know, now, as you said, combining vaccination, whether it's, you know, immunity through having had COVID and proving it to yourself, whether it's a vaccination, whatever it is, but combining that, uh, you know, an immunity with overall wellness, I agree. I think we're down to, you know, to a, 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 
regular sickness, something that's going to suck for a few days. And therefore, through my eyes, I feel like in a country where the vaccination has been available for free now for everyone, to, to, to pull back the reins and turn everyone back to where we were is, is wrong. And that, you know, we need to keep pushing forward. You know, the, the, it's still there for people who want it. But to say, oh, we're going to put masks on everyone again. We're going to start quarantining again. To me personally, that seems like everything you told everyone up to this point, you're kind of saying uh, we, we, we weren't telling you the truth. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of very confused about this Delta thing because, of course, there's going to be variations and we have prepared for these variations and we're human beings, not, you know, China dolls. Exactly. No, 100%. I mean, the last two points I'll say about that is, you know, I, I, you know, in the military, um, we can't enforce the vaccination yet because it's not FDA approved. Um, And it's really challenging for me, right, as a commander, like, you know, I want to best educate my soldiers. And I've had had soldiers come to me, you know, to ask for my professional opinion. um, And I try to tell them in a way that is not like, seems like coercion because they could actually put me under investigation for coercion um, for, you know, having some perception of trying to uh, force them to get it. So like I tell them is exactly what you said is in the military right before you deploy. Oh, first off you get every (laughs) vaccine under the sun pretty much uh, when you join the army, they wake you up at 3 AM and they inject you with a shit ton of shit at once. And already you're screwed up because you were asked to wake up Uh, four hours before you normally do and you're already sleep deprived and then they're injecting you with all these different um, microbes and substances. Uh, But right before you deploy, you have to get the anthrax vaccine. And I I always use this as an example with my soldiers. Like, I'm like, if you think coronavirus is unsafe, do you not remember getting injected with anthrax? It is, I swear to God, I don't know if you've gotten it. It is the worst worst like week of your life first it like burns and it's searing pain when it's going in and I remember I got my vaccine and then I had my annual society for neuroscience conference and I was I was like literally blacked out the whole conference for like three days I was so sick and had like an off and on figure fever I literally don't even remember presenting because I was just (laughs) like so out of it um, and I always try to use that as an example for my soldiers. It's just like, you know, you got that. Like, what's the difference between that and this? And they're like, well, I just don't want another vaccine. I'm like, well, it doesn't matter because when it's when it goes through the FDA approval, like, you know, the military is going to mandate it. So I just I just have to tread it lightly. Yeah, well, it's the same with traveling as well. So, I mean, I got this done to travel, but, you know, if you go to India, you're going to have to go through malaria protocol. You know, there's there's actual immunization requirements to get a visa to go to some countries. So, you know, of course, I'm, I'm all I'm totally apparently um, aware of some of the government overreach and some of the political crowbars that are being used with this. But a simple proof of vaccination to enter another country's border, I don't think is the same thing as having a star put on your chest like Nazi Germany. But some of the quarantine, you know, stipulations and, you know, the mask mandates and things like that, I think they are starting to, you know, like just 
Oh, they are overstep completely. Yeah, we're mandatory mask right now, all all around Fort Knox, and I, 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 I'm not joking about this. I am almost positive that in January 2020, I brought coronavirus to Fort Knox, and I say that because (laughs) this is the breaking news on Behind the Shield podcast. Here's why, because I, I, I swear it's probably like patient 10 in the U.S. and I didn't know that. Um, I spent like all of January being working with the army, like following patient zero, the guy from New Rochelle, New York, around the country. He was in Chicago when I was in Chicago. He lives two blocks from my best friend in New York and New Rochelle, uh, like literally two blocks from where my best friend lives. And I was there at the same time. And then also I was at a NATO conference and sure enough, like a few months ago, we sort of reconvened online and everyone's like, Hey, do you guys think we gave each other COVID like in January, 2020? Cause I was sick all of February and I had an off and on fever and was fatigued. And I was like, yeah, that was me too. And like, obviously like the antibodies and the testing were not even developed at the time because the U.S. didn't even know in February 2020 what, you know, COVID really was. But I, you know, and I, I tell this story because who's to say, like, this isn't this is going to happen again. Somebody else is going to get some unique variant and spread it somewhere and it's going to be rampant, you know. Absolutely. Well, that's a good segue to um, the next topic I want to get to, because what connected us originally, um, you know, you were working with O2X, but is your work with sleep, you know, in the tactical space specifically. And, you know, I think that some of the fear that was propagated with this whole handling of the pandemic has probably made people more vulnerable, more stress, less sleep, you know, worse food, lack of exercise, less daylight. Um, So getting off the COVID topic, you and I spoke three years ago. So what are some of the the new research studies, data that have emerged within the last three as far as sleep and, and the tactical athlete? So I think the biggest thing, and this relates to COVID too, is timing of sleep. Like we've sort of known now sleep quality is really important, but I think the COVID situation more than anything points to sleep timing and like plan your day around your sleep and wake schedule. Like with me, for example, I've talked about, I will never be anyone important in the army because I am not a morning person. I can ride the coattails of like leaders all day, but at the end of the day, I will spend the rest of my career in the lab because I don't have to be a morning person to do my job. Well, just like being an athlete, like athletes don't train at the butt ass crack dawn. They train in the middle of the day when their circadian system is most optimal. And that's how I live my life. And I'm not going to change it. You know what I mean? So uh, I think that's the biggest thing is it relates to timing is that like timing is everything. And if your timing, your natural biological timing isn't aligned with your profession or when you're doing certain things, then you're more likely to get sick and you're more likely to see physiological and psychological decline. Um, And it relates to COVID because I have a really good friend at the University of Michigan. Um, Her name's uh, Dr. Deirdre Conroy. And she sort of, she was one of the first people to really look at this. um, And they published it in the top journal of um, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, where they found a direct relationship between time at which individuals went to bed. And if it was delayed, um, 
relative to their normal bedtime, then there were compromises in their mood. Um, and one of the things that happened during the quarantine and stay at home order is like people started naturally delaying their sleep schedule, which kind of makes sense because us as humans, we, our natural sleep schedule is longer than 24 hours. Um, but it's not the people who are delaying it the most and we're delaying it in response to being on the phone or watching Netflix. Um, those were the individuals who additionally suffered the negative consequences of, of differences in mood and, uh, you know, lesser sleep quality and things like that. Well, another thing that I, I when, we, when this first thing um, started, I actually added another episode per week to really bring on you know, all these great minds. And I had um, Dr. John Cordell, for example, from the Navy was one of them. Um, you know, and whether it was sleep, whether it was exercise, whether, you know, whatever it was, anything that was positive, anything that was actionable for the individual so they didn't feel so helpless during this thing. But when this first started, what terrified me, because talking to people like you and Kirk Parsley and some of these other, you know, great minds in the sleep medicine world, I was aware of the impact of sleep deprivation and mental health, of musculoskeletal injury, of cancer and heart disease and weight gain and all the things that we talked about in our first conversation. But it also made me realize all the people on the front line are the most sleep-deprived, overworked men and women that we have. And we started seeing a, a huge you know, spike in, in law enforcement officers dying from COVID. You know, the, the, the line of duty deaths and suicides were the highest numbers up to that point. Um, and then, you know, doctors and nurses. So, um, through again, through your lens, the, the shift working first responders and medical personnel, in your opinion, were they more vulnerable because of the way they worked to this, this virus than the average person? So I actually saw the opposite experience with the military, but I think that's because we did a damn good job with our PPE. Um, by the end of our time in the Javits Center, um, our rate of infection was less than 1%. Uh, but there's other things in, at play here. So like my lab team, I had a team of about 18 NCOs um, or like lab technicians and um, medical logisticians uh, who worked under me. And I made sure they had rest recovery days. Like they would work three days, 12 hour shifts, and then they would have a day off. And I would, you know, try to educate them and, and ensure that they were getting adequate sleep and adequate recovery. And, you know, who's to say, I don't know directly if that had a profound impact, um, but I really tried to, to find ways to minimize their stress. We started, uh, I started this thing where every morning down in the hotel lobby, I had a board and it would have like the workout of the day. So I would put a, a workout that uh, at the time the Army Warrior Fitness Team was doing to you know, promote health and wellness across the public at large, I would take one of their workouts and put it down um, for somebody to do in their hotel. Or like the hotel we were staying at, uh, I had to climb 36 flights of stairs to get to my room. So I would twice a day, I would climb 36 flights of stairs. Um, so it's just those, those little things of rest and recovery and exercise um, in lieu of the shift work that can protect you know, it's not going to make you bulletproof um, and completely reduce the risk, but it's going to minimize the risk. So overall, though, when, when you look at the data, when people are working shifts for a long time, what is the effect on immunity? 
Oh, it, I mean, we know this now, right? Like shift work is a level two carcinogen and it takes anywhere from 10 to 15 years off your life. And the reason for that is the immune system is the first to be compromised. Yeah, there we go. Mic drop. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's that's just the thing is just painting the picture, though. You know, it's it's so frustrating. And I talk about this a lot. You know, when, when you go to a funeral and you see, you know, a folded American flag given to a heartbroken child and, and widow or widower and, you know, unwrapping the onion, peeling the onion layer by layer and, and understanding that there are ways to improve the way we work, but it has to be more rest and recovery, not more mandatory shifts. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that was one of the things I think, you know, it's it's what I tried to do as a commander, like, uh, and I've already heard some of my soldiers like tell me that I'm one of the most atypical commanders they'll ever have. And like, they hope I don't change is my very first day in command. I put in, you know, I had to update the company policies and I put in a fatigue management plan where I was like, guys, I'm serious about this. If you need an extra day while you're on the road, let me know. And we will adjust the schedule accordingly because I'm not having you out there driving a semi truck with millions of dollars of property and injuring yourself, but not even injuring yourself. I mean, they're more likely to injure somebody driving a, a Honda Civic, you know, and I like, I don't want to assume that risk. And to me, the risk of a drowsy driving is, is much greater than the risk of not accomplishing our mission of recruitment. Um, and, you know, if it delays our schedule, it delays our schedule. But guess what? At least my soldiers and the American public who are on the roadway at the time with them are safe. Absolutely. Well, you talked about the uh, Army Warrior Fitness Team. I think you joined them shortly after we we did our uh, our conversation as far as transitioning, you know, fully into there. So tell everyone kind of who they are and then, and then kind of walk me through up to the CrossFit Games that you guys, got, excuse me, that you guys were just at. Yeah, so um, the team was created um, about three years ago. They had this idea of, you know, going after, we're in peacetime right now, right? Like, you know, we are sure we're still, you know, fighting um, these um, insurgents in the Middle East. But, you know, for the most part, we're in peacetime. So recruiting is a challenge. However, um, the Army has fully recognized that when it comes to recruitment now, it's not about quantity, it's about quality. You want that individual who is a warrior, who is a Spartan, who has the mentality, the spirituality, and the physicality in order to get the job done. And there's no better place to look for that than a high school athlete and a CrossFit athlete, right? Because that is all built and nested into the CrossFit community. Um, and so um, the re he's retired now, but the former recruiting command general move um, he decided he wanted to find the best CrossFitters across the Army, bring us to Fort Knox, and have us compete professionally on behalf of the Army. Um, it's the same thing that the Army does with other athletic programs. Um, I don't know if you've been watching the Olympics and have seen um, some of the athletes competing for the U.S. are actually active duty Army. And one of them is a female. She's a lieutenant in our brigade won a gold medal in the uh, skeet shooting. Um, and there's also a wrestler. Um, there's a heptathlete. Um, it's, it's basically this idea of showing that like soldiers are more than just, uh, you know, kicking down doors and, um, 
you know, being lethal. Uh, we're, we're human and we're athletes. And um, what better way to recruit uh, the next generation of soldiers than people who care about their physical health, their mental health, and their nutrition. Um, so yeah, I was competing for basically two years as a professional athlete. Um, and we do, you know, we compete at high, at the highest level. So the intent is to make the games. Um, this year, none of us made the games. Uh, two of the, the athletes, uh, Sergeant Jacob Fath and Captain Rachel Schreiber got close to qualifying as individuals. Um, I did pretty decently uh, as a master's cause I compete as a, a CrossFit master's now. Um, but yeah, we were recently at the CrossFit games recruiting, um, that one of the trucks that I have, um, in my fleet is, is a fitness truck and it has rowers set up on it. So you can do head to head rowing competition. So it's, it's going to be great right during the school year to bring that truck into school systems. Um, but really it's just, yeah, unraveling the perceptions of what it means in the army integrating ourselves at the highest level of sport, like the army always has, and then preaching the, you know, the, to the, the Bible of holistic health and fitness to the American public. Beautiful. Well, that, that kind of makes me think of, uh, one of the solutions that I've come across through several people I had on here and, and one close friend here in Ocala, the solutions to the, the subject of diversity in the fire service in, in, in a bad example of diversity, you've seen, okay, we need X amount of insert, you know, type of person here. And they go out there and dragnet a bunch of people and bring them in. Some of whom may be amazing. Some of whom may not be the proactive approach to making sure that all elements of the community are represented is to go in there with mentor programs and get to remove the barriers to entry for people that maybe couldn't afford, you know, a CrossFit gym membership or, you know, uh, firefighter selection prep class or whatever it is and put mentorship programs in how through the army's recruiting eye are you able to to penetrate some of the the communities that maybe you know maybe not um you know obviously visible as a high level athlete maybe because of their environment and 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 allow some of these uh young men and women in these uh poorer or less represented communities to to you know become great recruits and great soldiers ultimately yeah excellent question because this is what i try to preach and i hope that someday it like gets received at the highest level is you know a lot of times the crossfit competitions we go to and the cities we compete in the people at the actual event their likelihood of joining the army is very slim i mean not to like toot my own horn, but there are very few people like me who are highly degreed and highly educated who are going to join the army. Um, and in fact, I had the same sentiment about the army until I started working for Walter Reed and saw this whole different light, right? And honestly, if I didn't work for Walter Reed in the beginning as a civilian, I would have dismissed the army too. It'd be like, no, I spent 14 years in school becoming a neuroscientist. And I am not joining the army. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, but uh, so I don't think those are our, our targeted market because they also come from higher socioeconomic status. Like at the end of the day, the people who end up joining the army is because they need to get out of the bad situation they're in. Um, so sure, we do have highly degreed programs. The army will pay for your medical school. They will help you become a world-renowned trauma surgeon or a world-renowned JAG lawyer. Um, and so I think those like higher 
um, the greed professions is what we need to preach more to the, um, the CrossFit community. But what we need to do is after the competition is do something what we've done before. It's actually called the Green Beret Project, where we integrate ourselves into the the hoods, like the worst areas, Section 8 housing in the city, which we've done before outside of Philadelphia, just like the Green Berets go into these really poor areas and integrate themselves to try to create peace and assimilation during wartime. Um, we need to go to those communities to get those kids because, one, you're, they're more, way more likely to join the army because it's a way out. And two, you can unravel perceptions of what it means to be in the army. And three, if you're in there with them, they're more likely to gain your trust and, you know, to consider the army long term. Um, I know. So like the Green Beret Project, for example, they already integrate uh, combatives and CrossFit in terms of like building an, a holistic health and, and fitness program within these these very, very poor neighborhoods. Yeah, it's, it's so good to hear because I think that's a solution. You know, obviously, again, if you leave your TV on, you're going to see that the whole United States is burning down and all different races hate each other. But if you turn it off and go into most communities, they're, you know, just full of people of all backgrounds that are trying to, like you said, move on in life. Um, and I think the big thing in the first responder profession is just giving young men and women the tools to be prepared to be a good candidate in, in our profession. And the same with the military. You don't want it to be, oh, it's either going to be jail or the army. You want them to be excited about the army. You want them to be running and doing push-ups and pull-ups, preparing for their PFT and, you know, and, and being proud when they actually make it. So, to me, that's the solution for so many of, of the troubles that we've seen this last year and a half, too. Oh, absolutely. And I think what's cool, too, is like we do have a lot of, you know, diversity in terms of, uh, you know, race and gender on our team. But um, it, it's to me, the most empowering thing is, is like when we go into these communities that are very poor and very black. Right. Like, I mean, these are communities that I used to look at um, risk for sleep apnea and comorbidities. Um, and, and when I was in Atlanta, Georgia, we would go into the worst neighborhood, like historically black neighborhoods in Atlanta and look at this. It's the same thing we did in Philly. And like, here I am as a, as a PhD neuroscientist, highly degreed individual who went to an Ivy league going into this poor neighborhood of like his, this historically black neighborhood and telling these kids and like gaining these kids trust and like genuinely trying to get them out of their situation in their community. And I think there's something so powerful about that. Absolutely. Well, um, I just want to talk about one area because there's an interesting kind of um, cross-pollination recently. So with the entrance test, so with, you know, we've got these young candidates wherever they're from and, and the army um, test is now the new PFT. So I think when we last spoke, it had just been put in. So firstly, what are you seeing statistically, whether it's injury prevention, whether it's the kind of candidates that you're getting? I mean, what is the success of switching from the old, you know, push up, sit up, run to the new PFT that you've got now? So. I know there's injury. There's there seems to be like, you know, the data's not out there yet, but there's the likelihood of injury is greater with the new test because of the what is tested. But I think the beauty of the new test is you can't so most people in the army I'm going to tell you, 
the, the, the old physical fitness test rolls around, people start dieting and they start trying to get somewhat in shape like a month beforehand, you know, if they're not already mandated to do organized PT. But this new test, it's a lifestyle change. You literally have to train year round in order to pass it. And you have to even change your nutrition and your sleep habits and your, your mindset. You have to do all these different things. Um, and so when it comes back to recruits, yeah, it makes sense why we went into the CrossFit community and we we're going into high school athletic communities because their likelihood of getting injured is significantly less, right? Like they have built their bodies since childhood to endure the physical stress of athletic competition. And you want somebody who is coming into the army. We know that if you have never had a pre-existing injury coming into the army, which is like highly vetted and highly scrutinized, like even for me, my foot injury, I had my sophomore year of college was scrutinized when I was joining the army, you know, 10 years later, even though I had already competed in the CrossFit games twice. Um, but we know that if you come in injured, you're going to cost the army so much money in healthcare dollars right there. So in a sense, like this team and this new recruitment initiative is kind of a cost savings plan for the military uh, to get people who are likely to be stay ready, win our nation's wars, but then less likely to get injured and be a cost to the U.S. government. Yeah. And again, it's, it's such a simple philosophy. You keep the bar high because you're asking people to do incredible things with their minds and their bodies. So that's the problem I've seen with the first responder space where either the bar has been lowered or, which we see a lot, you, you know, maybe are held to a certain standard as a probie, you know, as, as a new hire. But then after you get in, there's no annual fitness requirements, certainly not that you're held to. So, you know, I, it's great to hear that because I agree. Why would you not stay in shape as a firefighter, police officer? And I think that would then hopefully force the the eyes to look at the environment too. I never blame just the individual. Some of us are set up for failure and some of us succeed regardless. But, you know, the environment that some of these, you know, first responders work in, um, you know, it, it's an uphill battle to stay in shape. So I think that the keeping the bar high not only selects the best people, but maintaining that bar if we stay in shape, we are less likely to, to get hurt as long as we're given the rest and recovery, which is where I think we drop the ball in many of our professions. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, that's that's exactly like the mentality that the Army should subscribe to. I, I mean, I remember early on when I started um, at Walter Reed, there's this lieutenant colonel. He's a microbiologist. And he's like, you know, I don't understand why people in the army can't stay in shape. It's literally our first job. You could take time whenever you, and it's true. You could literally look your boss in the face and be like, sir, I got to go work on my PT because that's my job. And so honestly, I do that now with all my soldiers. And again, I'm, I'm at the, against the grain commander, but we use lunchtime between 1130 and one Monday, Wednesday, Friday to do PT. And like, sure, from the higher up, they can be like, you got to have this earlier, you know, at 630 in the morning. And of course, I will push back against that as a sleep scientist, right? <laughs> exactly. Because I wrote a lot of that data and collected a lot of that data for the military in terms of why 
it is a terrible idea to have organized PT at 536 in the morning. Yes, I have said it. Um, but, um, you know, at the same time, like I can say that as like, sir, physical readiness, number one priority of the army. So we're going to PT three times a week for an hour and a half over lunch. Yeah, beautiful. Now, the, the, the cross-pollination I was talking about, I recently became involved with BeaverFit, the company. I had Tom Beaver, who was the original founder, and then um, the guys that founded the, the American branch of that. And they supplied all all the uh, equipment for the PFT. So, again, without loading the question, you know, have you experienced their stuff, and, and what's your perspective on that? No, I haven't. Um, you know, and I think it's just because of, you know, being on the CrossFit team where we love Rogue, right? Like, they, it's just um, – but the Beaver Fit units are beautiful. I mean, I have seen them around post here. Um, I just, um, you know, I'm, I'm a Rogue snob because it's just name brand of CrossFit. <laughs> it's been interesting. Again, I'm not, I'm not, you know, talking bad about Rogue at all, but when, when you hear – the stories behind it when you hear where beaver fit equipment is deployed you know whether it's on you know in the middle east in a desert whether it's on the deck of a, a naval fleet and i actually just went and saw a rig down on miami beach you know sand and, oh, yeah. and ocean I, uh, I was down there too so we were down there for the miami air and sea show it's awesome yeah i saw it there and then yeah when i was deployed i was on a, a very small forward operating base in kuwait a few years ago and we had a beaver fit unit and it was it was my sanity like it is truly incredible. That company has probably had a profound impact on society in more ways than it realizes it. Yeah. Yeah. And, I'm, and one of my goals is to make them, you know, one of the go-tos for responders. And the reason being, Rogue is great in a gym setting. And I've, you know, used Rogue. I've been doing CrossFit for 14 years. So I've been around their stuff for a long time. What, you know, with the, what we need though is we need firstly space storage solutions, which obviously they have, you know, I mean, you can have a foot locker that turns into a pull up bar and, you know, all these things, the uh, squat platform, but also their stuff because it can sit in the desert in the middle of the ocean. It doesn't matter if it's in the back of a fire station, if it's exposed to the elements, if it's in the bay next to the exhaust, because their stuff is built for the tactical population, not the gym population. Absolutely. No, I'm a huge fan of them. And yes, that beaver fit unit in, in Miami, like uh, one of my buddies, we were talking about this. We were like, he's like, man, I want to retire down there just to go there every day. And I'm like, yeah, me too. <laughs> like that's <laughs> a, that's a retirement goal right there. Yeah, no, it's, it's a beautiful place. Well, speaking of kind of your journey, um, I know you recently, you know, kind of found yourself at the end of the road, but yeah. That is really, I mean, it's not a, irrelevant, but there's so much power to that. So walk me through your pursuit of becoming an astronaut, because I think that's fascinating. And then, and then when we get to the end, talk to me about how, if there's any, you know, any chance of, of, of revisiting and, and testing for it again. Yeah. So I, one, I'm definitely going to reapply and I am young. I'm almost 37. So, um, and I've heard it takes two or three times sometimes to, to get selected. Um, but yeah, it's been like a two year process. So, uh, when I first came to Fort Knox, I learned about the astronaut program through my sergeant major. And, um, you know, it started out with 18,000 people nationwide. Um, the army had its own like initial call. So, um, there's over 12,000 people from the army who applied. Um, I was vetted down, um, 
to basically, I, I went for an interview at NASA where they had 120, I mean, truly great Americans who interviewed. Um, and from that 120, um, they decided to select 30. And so we know that 12 to 15 of those 30 will be up in space someday. Um, but when I was there, I mean, I met like, I mean, the vetting process, it worked because every single person I met is just an truly incredible human being who has done incredible things you can't even fathom. Like I was there feeling like I had imposter syndrome, knowing that I've done good things in my life. But like this one planetary scientist had a rock that he discovered in the Smithsonian that he brought for his interview, um, just like test pilots and the, this like there was a doctor who was also a B-52 pilot and uh, he actually was a fellow pole vaulter just like me. So that, you know, we, of course, bonded over that. Um, it's just it was an incredible thing to be a part of. And there was things I had to do over the last two years to make myself even more competitive. Um, I became a diving um, a medically uh, certified through the Army for dive medicine. Hardest three weeks of my life way harder than ever competing in the CrossFit Games, let alone training for the CrossFit Games. That course down at the Army's Dive School was hands down the hardest course I've ever done in my life, uh, mentally and physically, because they basically throw you in the ocean day one, um, never having scuba before, and you have to figure it out. And by the end, um, by the end of the week, you're doing 100-foot dives down with 50 barracudas looking at you on either side. Um, so you talk about being prepared for austere environments. Like I think the Army's dive medicine course is the number one best way to prepare anyone for the unknown and the unknowable. Um, I also started learning Russian too. Uh, turns out one of my neighbors down the street, I contacted him. He was the chair of Russian studies at the University of Louisville. Turns out he was my neighbor. So I have been, you know, we're friends now. We, uh, he just got back actually from Georgia, the country he was in Tbilisi and, um, his friend, uh, knew somebody who brewed wine out of Joseph Stalin's grapes. So just like three weeks ago, I was on his porch speaking Russian with him, drinking wine that apparently like was harvested from Joseph Stalin for like, you know, generations. Um, so yeah, then, you know, long story short is a lot of preparation, um, physical preparation. Um, and you know, I didn't make it this time, but I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in a good position to, um, you know, I think it will happen. I, I believe it will happen. It's just, it's not my time yet. Yeah, no, I'm sure it will. And it's, it's amazing when you said about the amazing humans, I listened to, uh, Johnny Kim, you know who that is? So actually, I uh, I had a I had a cocktail with Johnny Kim at the uh, the cock so they had a cocktail party the first night where a lot of the current astronaut corps was there, um, and I know Johnny Kim from O2X because Johnny Kim was SEAL battles with um, Adam Larue, the uh, CEO and founder of O2X. Ah, because I I would love to get Johnny on now. I understand how busy he is, and just for anyone who doesn't recognize the name, Johnny Kim was a Navy SEAL is a physician and an astronaut. So <laughs> right, that's the thing. He's Harvard Medical School Navy SEAL astronaut. Like where where do you go from there? Yeah, like you said, it's hard not to feel like an imposter when you're standing next to someone like that who's basically lived three lifetimes at the age of thirty, whatever he is. Yeah. Yeah. 
but it uh, you know those like those this people like we have a whatsapp channel and like like I talk to them all the time. There, there's two people in particular I stay in touch with, and you know it was comforting too because I thought they were going to get selected, and they thought I was going to get selected. So it's nice to have this, like, you know, when we had we found out two weeks ago, it's nice to have like camaraderie around it. Um, but you know, if, if it happens, it happens. It, it just it was such a cool experience for the amount of humans I met, like incredible humans I met. Yeah, but to go from 12,000 to 30, I mean, that's you know, a huge positive sign that you're obviously made of what they're looking for. But, you know, maybe, as you said, maybe it was just to to test, you know, persistence or whether it was literally being number 16 and next time you'll be, you know, top 15. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I think what, what was really nice about getting the news is this, like, I got the news that... The, on July 23rd, which was the opening ceremonies of the Olympics. And I was like, you know what? It, it was the perfect time, right? Because I'm like, there's only one gold medal. How do you think that silver and bronze medalists or the people who didn't even medal feel? Like, there's going to be lots of heartbreaks the next two weeks. I might as well just bask in the heartbreak with, like, these people who literally have been doing the same thing I have been. It's like training a whole lifetime to be an Olympic gold medalist. I feel like I've been training my whole lifetime to be an astronaut. So it was, it was kind of comforting to receive the news during the Olympics as well. Yeah. Well, speaking of the Olympics quickly, did you know that there was actually a refugee team this year? No. Yeah, so I'd never heard of it. It just popped up on one of the kind of positive, uh, you know, uh, accounts that I follow. But yeah, I, I'm assuming because obviously these people were of this one country. They fled for a multitude of reasons. There's this one Syrian swimmer. And when they were, you know, escaping and, and they were in the ocean, I think the boat started taking on water, if I'm not mistaken. So she jumped out and basically towed the boat with all the refugees in it for the last like three miles or something crazy so the yeah but yeah so rather because they don't have a country specifically yet there's literally a, an international refugee team which i again i don't know why that didn't get more you know coverage because i think that's an incredible story so cool i mean i heard about i thought that was so adorable the um that that two high jumpers the one from cutter and was it italy that were like besties and they're like <laughs> why can't we both get the gold medal like i love that that was awesome yeah and they didn't they didn't they share it in the end yeah they shared the gold medal like that's so cool yeah like, true that's cool about the refugees i mean that seems like the you know the classic uh what's his name zimpini the boat uh the um unbroken story all over again yes yeah, exactly. Now, you know, another tangent as well. And again, this is purely from a sports performance fairness lens. What is your view of the, the transgender athletes, especially in the combat sports, um, you know, the, the powerlifting, that kind of thing? It's funny you ask me that because I literally as part of a symposia through the Society for Neurosports three weeks ago. You can watch the YouTube video of the symposia online about sex differences in athletic performance. Because uh, I've studied this in real time. Um, I have studied the direct impact of the testes determining gene called SRY on sleep and wake processes. And actually my partner, she has studied this um, in 
human populations in general, looking at sex differences in hand grip strength. She even has this one finding where you could look through this meta-analysis you did. You could randomly select an elite female and she is 86% likely to be less uh, strong than a mediocre male. And we see that with the Army Combat Fitness Test. And I think she used that as an example uh, for me in um, her talk is, I know I'm one of the fittest females in the Army. And I know my score on the new fitness test, which does away with age and gender, is one of the top in the Army. I got a 488 last time. Um, And I didn't even train for the test, right? Like, I just did it at, like, 6 a.m., which is well before I normally wake up in the morning. Like I'm usually not even awake before 7 a.m. And I perform like a mediocre male. I have one of the top female scores in the army and I perform like a mediocre male. So that is my opinion right there because testosterone is a performance enhancing drug. Now, what do you think the answer is? Because to me, the, the, the solution seems very simple. You have four divisions. You have, you know, naturally born and still identifying as male and female and then you have transgender from you know from male to female and transgender from female to male divisions and that way it's completely fair and but i again there's these arguments back and forth but i to that that would be my solution what what would be your solution in the sporting space to be inclusive but to also be fair at the same time yeah i don't think you can be inclusive like i know i sound like a dick but (laughs) Like at the end of the day, my background is behavioral genetics. And unfortunately, these individuals lost the genetic lottery, whether it's biologically or by choice. Guess what? There's the Gay Olympics. I'm competing next summer in Hong Kong in the Gay Olympics. We can test all the events of the normal Olympics. And it is the same Olympic events. And in in fact, the last time I competed in Paris, um, we use the same, they use the same race courses. It was more or less a testing bed for the Paris 2024 Olympics. Um, there's 92 countries there, 3000 athletes. I won eight gold medals. The one silver medal I won, to be honest with you, I know is a, it was a, a man who was transitioning to a woman. Um, or at least that's what it looked like. And it was like, I looked at that athlete and I was like, okay, I am not getting the gold today. I am getting the silver or something else. And sure enough, I did. I got the silver. Um, and yes, I know I sound like an, like a bigoted asshole, but I think when it comes to the Olympics, there's only so much fairness you can do. Yeah, well, the parameters are so slim when it comes to, you know, performance-enhancing drugs. And even, I mean, it was crazy, that one sprinter that we had, the U.S. sprinter that was disqualified because of marijuana. I've never seen someone run faster smoking weed, personally, so that was weird. Oh, my God, don't even get me started. <laughs> That's ridiculous, right? Like, you know, I understand, like, anabolic steroids, yes, 100%. Uh, marijuana? Come on, guys. It's it's 2021. Yeah, unless there's a snack of the finish line, I can see maybe that would be more motivating. But <laughs> I mean, technically, she didn't do anything illegal. Like, if she's in the military, yes, okay, like that's illegal. I can't smoke pot. Um, but she she li- like I thought it was totally justified. She lives in a state where it's legal, but it's. You know, it's, I guess, it, you know, and you can argue it comes with the ethics of sports and things like that. But um, 
But yeah, I, again, I know I seem very insensitive. I, I just, the transgender thing, like, again, there's a reason why the gay Olympics exists. Like, and I know it might not be as well known, but we still have to qualify. Like I just got my registration last week that I qualified and I'm ready to register for competing in track and field in Hong Kong in 2022. And I'm going to start gearing my training towards defending my eight gold medals there. Now, what was the the one uh, event that you got silver in? Long jump. Long jump. Okay. Yeah. So again, kind of a power sport. Yeah, it was, I mean, the, she, she, like the athlete was like 6'2". I'm like, nope, not me, not today. Uh, but the other events were it was competed in the heptathlon basically and then um, the pole vault. Yeah. Yeah, and so to me, it just seems like if there's a gay games, then you know, having a, a transgender, you know, one direction or the other would be the solution as well. You know, but uh, I mean, so many of us lose a genetic lottery just because of our physicality. I'm built like a matchstick. I'm not winning any powerlifting competitions anytime soon. Exactly, and so here's the thing too: is like, it's not the, the gay games has been around for honestly 12 years, and they have a formal like olympic committee who decides who's the next host city so this is the first time that it's going to be in asia um but they already have the host cities for 2026 on the books one is uh, guadalajara mexico one is rio de janeiro in brazil um i can't remember what the other two are so it's like they literally treat it and i send you pictures they treat it like an actual olympic games like we had an opening ceremony with 92 countries and we walked out the united states team we had a closing ceremony we had all the events the only additional event they have for the gay olympics is ice skating because (laughs) you can't do the gay olympics without ice skating but uh but yeah, it exists and it has existed since the 1980s. So if you want to compete, compete in that. And I know, again, I, I'm sure some people are going to hate this podcast and think I'm an asshole, but. No, I, I disagree, though. I think that these are the conversations that need to be had because it's, you know, again, we, you get these polarizing things. You're either, uh, you know, a bigoted whatever or. You know, um, there's this, there's the the kind of ridiculing of the transgender athlete, and the conversation in the middle is, you know, you're a phenomenal athlete. Let's just figure out how to make this fair. It's as simple as that. Exactly. That's what it comes to back to is fairness. And you know, there's this great book. It was actually the muse for my own book, Meathead, called The Sports Gene, where they go into all the the finite details of why certain countries are better at some sports than others. Like for example, high jumpers, right? You line up a bunch of high jumpers in the Olympics. Their anthropometric body features all look the same. The sports gene book will tell you they also have a really rigid Achilles tendon that basically makes their body be a springboard. We know the best, fastest sprinters in the world come from this tiny village in Jamaica, and they have this one genetic mutation in this gene called SCN8-alpha that allows for them to maintain great muscle power while having muscle elongation so they can have a huge stride length and not lose their power. Like we know, we know Norwegian uh, biathletes have a, an uncanny ability to absorb or have uh, like insane hemoglobin levels. So they're able to um, have 
a whole bunch of red blood cells held to hemoglobin more so than the average human. Like there's a genetic lottery when it comes to being an Olympian. There's a reason why the whole men's and women's gymnastics team, they literally all look the same, just like at the CrossFit games, every single CrossFit athlete looks the same. Yeah. I mean, it's basically mesomorphs, isn't it? <laughs> In the CrossFit games, that's the perfect body type. And, you know, you don't see usually really tall, skinny guys and you don't see tiny gymnastic looking people either. There's, you know, the, the rich froning physique seems to be a pretty popular, um, you know, look for most of the, the winners. Five, seven, 180 pounds. That's your athlete. You know, like five, five and like 150. Beautiful. Well, I think that's a great place to transition to some closing questions. If that's, uh, if you still got time for that. Oh yeah, for sure. Actually, it's been really great to like do a podcast and like, honestly, this is one of probably the more real talk podcasts I've done where I'm not just like talking about, I mean, I love talking about sleep, but I think we talked about a lot of real world stuff. Um, you know, that it, it you know, it, it's good for, for educational purposes. Absolutely. Well, and also the, the previous conversation, you know, when, when you came on the first time, we, we did really explore that a lot. So I don't want to, you know, pull people through, but it's some interesting tangents with sleep and COVID or, you know, as you know, just, just there's so many other things to talk about. And I think that's a problem. People get known as the expert in subject X or they were at disaster Y and people just ask about that one thing when, you know, there's a whole life of experience there. So the... Well, first, before I ask you about other books, so just to, to make sure people are here as well. So your book is Meathead Unraveling the Athletic Brain. So where can people find that? Uh, so the best bet is Amazon. Uh, you can buy it in soft cover, hard cover. I've been, uh, I, I really need to do an audio book of it. Um, maybe I'll get around to it one day, but um, yeah, it's on Amazon. Beautiful. So Within the last three years, are there any new books that you've read that you love to recommend? It can be related to what we've discussed today or completely unrelated. Yeah. So, I mean, it took me a while to read it, but there's this great book called American Moonshot, which is about the history of the Space Administration and how President Kennedy was truly responsible for um, this, this you know, the, the evolution and where the space administration is today. Um, it also was, it was kind of like unsettling for me to read because, uh, I come, I'm Eastern European and my family is of Jewish descent. Um, and it turns out like the whole NASA space program, much like the army and military R and D program, um, came from the best Nazi, uh, rocket scientists and scientists and physiologists from Germany, they were recruited by the U.S. after the World, World War II. And, you know, they were basically said, hey, like, if you promise allegiance to the United States, you can come work for us. Uh, so it, it was like a very, like, eye-opening book to read um, in many ways from the perspective of American history. Um, and I guess that being said, too, since I'm also, like, a huge history buff, there's this great book called Poisoner-in-Chief, and it's about the same concept where the U.S. government brought over the best Nazi physiologists and pharmacologists after World War II um, to develop um, new use cases for hallucinogens and LSD and other drugs through the CIA to look at to see if those drugs could be used for mind control during the Cold War. Um, 
I think those are the two most like interesting books I've, I've read in the last few years. Well, and I haven't heard either of them recommend it before. It's, it's interesting because I've got Dr. Edith Eger coming on who was um, in Auschwitz. She's an Auschwitz survivor and she became a psychologist. So an incredible story. No, it's, uh, you know, for me, I almost like once I read Poisoner in Chief, I almost had this moral dilemma because um, a lot of it talked about the scientist at Fort Dietrich, which is named after um, Dr. Dietrich. He's very well-known Nazi scientist who came over um, after the war. And it's almost a more dilemma, right? Because I will spend my entire Army career working for the uh, Army Medical Research Command, which is housed at a Fort Dietrich. And it's like, you know, like I want to take this terrible situation and continue to do great things for humanity in a morally ethical, responsible way. But it is kind of unsettling, too, to know that, like, you know, that the, the history of this program came out of, you know, people who, who killed my, fam my family and my, my family's friends. Absolutely. But in a way, I guess you're... you're turning a bad thing into a good thing so you know th there's that uh, one thing i didn't i forgot to ask you and i meant to to ask before we we got to the end a real eye-opener for me in the last few years is hearing um you know the work of maps and even this the seal community um getting incredible results from ibogaine or psilocybin and even hearing that that's doing incredible healing when it comes to TBIs as well. So with you being a neuroscientist, what's your exposure to, to that group of drugs and their positive effects? Uh, as I will say off the record, I am a huge believer in using those serotonergic um, agonists for emotional trauma and physiological neuroblast trauma. I mean, at the end of the day, those drugs are serotonin agonists um, and they bind and they act in a way that is more powerful. Um, and also I believe healthier than what is available through big pharma, but that's a whole, you know, political <laughs> uh, situation that we don't have uh, two hours for. Uh, advocate for because you know at the end of the day i do work for the federal government <laughs> yes no i'm i'm working on not myself i'm not the expert but bringing on guests to educate us all on things like this and really revisit drug prohibition and and question whether imprisoning addicts who in my opinion are mental health patients is the right way of doing it or do we take addicts out of the criminal system and put them into the the medical realm and address mental health in this country and therefore our veterans don't have to go overseas to get the treatment for the very trauma they got protecting this country in the first place i am 100 percent with you i have been involved in the early evolution of these programs before i was working for the army um, I'm 100% with you on using uh, new use. You know, it's the same thing what we do in the Army. New use cases for existing medications and plant-based compounds. I am all about new use cases for uh, plant-based compounds in the form of uh, Schedule One drugs for the treatment of emotional trauma. As a neuroscientist, I know they work. I've seen it personally work. Beautiful. That's such a powerful perspective. And this is it, whether it's COVID, whether it's you know, all these things, it's not a pundit running their mouth. It's just 
going to the people who are the experts in the field and they may say the complete opposite, but I'm all good with that too. So it's just so powerful to hear perspective from, you know, well-respected people in their field. So thank you. So the next question, is there a, a film and or a documentary that you've seen the last few years that you really enjoyed? Yeah, I actually, I mean, I guess you might as well just stay uh, on controversial topics. So there's this documentary on Netflix. Um, I forget what it's called. I think it's called Stripped Down. But it's basically about like females, especially females who have been victims of rape or sexual trauma using pole dancing as like a form of like really crazy intense exercise, but also as a means to like regain um, a body image and like create body positivity and like increase self-esteem um, and, um, you know, security and who they are as, as individuals and how they approach relationships in the future. It was super fascinating. Um, so that's, uh, that's the most interesting documentary I've seen. I think it's called Strip Down. It's on Netflix. Beautiful. I have to look for that. Yeah. It sounds very interesting. Even there was a kind of like a reality TV, half cheesy um, plastic surgery uh, show on, I think it was Netflix or whatever. I don't know what it was on originally. And it was a, a doctor and a, I think it was a nurse. Um, but, you know, some of the people that came in, you know, their scars, one poor woman had been, you know, her husband or boyfriend had attempted to murder her. And I think he killed their child too, if I'm not mistaken. And she had these bullet holes, you know, the, these scars and she survived the attack. But those were a daily reminder of the trauma. And again, you know, that that's a powerful thing. I'd love to get one of them on, actually, because you don't think of plastic surgery helping overcoming trauma, but some people harbor the the burns, the, the, the stab wounds, whatever it is, and they're a daily reminder. So it's an interesting perspective as well that even though what happened is inside your brain, it may be reflected in the mirror as well. Oh, my gosh, absolutely. Yeah, I would never have thought about that too. But again, you know. It's just like CrossFit, like whoever would have thought that CrossFit would have helped people deal with trauma as well, too. Same thing. Absolutely. All right. Well, the next question, is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I would love to get you one of my army battles who is in the thick of it with uh, COVID with me. Um, I have a friend. Uh, she's a major too. Her name's, a, she's a dentist. I'll reach out to her. She's actually in Baghdad right now. She's, she gives me FOMO every day. Cause I wish I was with her, you know, like doing uh, combat casualty care um, in an austere environment. But I really want to, want to give you somebody from my task force med nine team. Cause we did really see it all during COVID. We were all called out like no knock deployment. And a lot of them have gone on to continue their deployment um, to Baghdad, not for COVID, but they, they, it was just their rotation in the field support hospital there. Beautiful. Yeah, that would be great. Actually, I haven't had a dentist on yet. I've had an optometrist, but I haven't had a dentist. So even, even the, the oral health element would be interesting. Yeah. She is a CrossFitter too. And she can tell you how we met, which is me splitting my head open, uh, during our third day in New York, because I, um, my friend, Anthony, who owned CrossFit Health Kitchen, let like me and a few others like just train out of his gym. And I was doing a muscle up and I neglected to see the pull-up bar. 
right behind me and I split my head open and I had to have a private first class who wasn't even an army medic yet. I had to instruct and mentor him through putting 14 staples into my head. Uh, and Sarah, Major Mendel was there to witness all of it. And that's how we became friends was the day I split my head open in the, in the epicenter of death in the world pandemic. <laughs> Brilliant. All right. And then another person I still haven't managed to, I know you, you were trying to help me, um, three years ago, but Dr. Matt Walker as well. But I have got Dr. Andrew Huberman supposedly coming on. So hopefully that will be the connection. Yes. Hopefully. Yeah. I wish I had a better in with that, but I don't, unfortunately. I thought that. But I'm not. I guess I'm apparently not that good. <laughs> yeah, he he's, he does a very good job. I think it's probably because he works for Google um, of keeping himself, you know, away from any any uh, solicitation. So, uh, but uh, I'm a persistent bugger. I'll get there in the end. Um, all right. Well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you. What do you do to decompress? Skateboard. So that's what I do every night. Is uh, rain, cold, unless it's snowing or. Um, I, I skateboard. That's that's what I do. I go home and I ride my skateboard. Now, do you ride a regular one or do you have one? My son's got a regular one, but he's also got one of those electric power ones that he has a lot of fun on too. Um, no, I, I've been skateboarding every day of my life since I was 10. I have three different boards. I have a long board, I have a medium board, and then I have like a trick board. Um, most of the time I use a medium board. Um, I love my long board, but the, I always wear a helmet with that because like – that shit flies and yeah, like once you get going, it's hard to stop. Um, but yeah, that's what I do almost every night is I skateboard. Brilliant. All right. Well, for everyone listening, I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of people that are intrigued that would love to learn more about you, about your work. Where are the best places online to reach out to you or follow you? Um, honestly, so, you know, the Army, they've done a really good job of building up our social media presence. Um, so my my social media Instagram handle is sort of like my professional and personal one together. It's um, Doc Jock ZZZ. So D O C J O C K Z Z Z. Beautiful. Well, Alison, I just want to say thank you so much. I mean, we had a great conversation the first time. It was great, you know, actually having dinner with you that evening. Um, but uh, there's just so much value in, you know, in your perspective and get the, the fire service, sadly, we're so siloed that we don't share a lot of information. There's a lot of, a lot of research in our profession, yet people want data. So it's people like you and Rachel and Kirk and some of these, you know, military authorities in the tactical space when it comes to, you know, neuroscience that are really, you know, a valuable resource for us. So thank you so much for telling your story today. Oh my gosh, absolutely. And it's great to like virtually see you again. Uh, I was just thinking about you the other day because, um, we were supposed to have our annual military health symposia down in Florida again, uh, but they just canceled it because of the Delta variant. I was planning on texting you anyway to tell you I was going to be down in Orlando, but that's not happening now. 